Psalm 103 on page 502. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us our, according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, My name is Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, And we started a new series last week uh, called Real Life. And it is, we're going to be spending the next um, nine, ten weeks in Psalms kind of looking at the Psalms and unpacking some of the themes from it. And um, we call it real life because the Psalms really are an intersection between um, people living real lives and faith. Um, the Psalms, you know, a lot of times when people just kind of approach the Bible and they see all these poems and, and, and all this sort of stuff, they, they, they look at it and they think that it's really just um, a lot of religious sentiment, maybe some, some idealistic um, hyper-spirituality. Um, the sort of stuff that belongs on coffee cups and possibly motivational posters that we ignore in our office. Um, but the reality is that what we have here are a collection of poems, songs that were written by people um, that were living real lives, just like us. They were struggling with the same things we struggle with, and um, they are struggling to live their lives in faith. They're trying to live their lives in light of their faith, in the power of their faith. They're struggling to understand how their faith connects with the things of life. And so this series is looking at how our faith impacts um, real life, us, where we are and the stuff we're dealing with, which means um, we're going to have to talk about suffering because the reality is um, a lot of our life is going to be characterized by some form of of suffering. There's a lot of different kinds of suffering. There's general suffering in which we're just suffering from living in, in a world that's broken. There's unjust suffering, um, the kind of suffering that, that we endure at the hands of wicked people. There's just suffering, the kind of suffering we deserve, that we bring on ourselves through our own stupidity. Um, there's lots of different kinds of suffering, but the reality is a lot of our life is defined in one way or another by these struggles by this pain, by the stuff we're dealing with. And so that's kind of where we're going, um, not through the entire series, but at least at the beginning, unpacking what it means 
um, to have faith in the midst of suffering. Now, you're like, Steve, we just read Psalm 103, and that was like a pretty cheerful psalm. (laughs) That was like a psalm of praise, right? That's how we categorize Psalm 103. It's a praise psalm. Uh, There's a lot of like, bless the Lord's in there, right? A lot of be cheerful, oh my souls, and, and isn't this great kind of stuff, right? Uh, yes, yeah, actually that is the predominant theme of the psalm, but I want to show you something right in the middle of it and use that kind of as a launching board to un- unpack what, what David is talking about here. Take a look at verses 15 and 16. In 15 and 16, David says this, he says, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. I want you to catch what, what David is saying here. Right in the middle of this psalm is a description of what it means to be human. And it's poetic, but I want you to catch this. It's brutal. This is not uh, religious sentimentality. This is not coffee cup spirituality. This is a pretty brutal, realistic view of life. Um, during this period of time, David is writing in Palestine, which is a desert region. And, um, and desert regions will have rainy seasons or at least rains that come through. And, and a lot of them, like Death Valley, that's a picture of Death Valley, once a year will actually blossom. Um, and, and you would never know it. I mean, you go down there and, it, and it's beautiful. It's green, huge fields full of, of flowers and, um, and it's gorgeous. Um, the problem is that it's, it's incredibly temporary. Um, uh, as for man, his days are like grass. And he's talking about that kind of grass that sprouts up and it flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it. And here he's talking about that desert wind that returns. And when the desert wind comes back into the valley after that very short rainy season, after that very short season of flourishing, it kills everything. It kills everything. The flowers are dead. The grass is dead to the point where um, it says that its place knows it no more. Uh, it's like the valley doesn't even remember that it had flowers, right? And what he's saying is that that's what it means to be human. How's that for a cheerful start? Um, that's pretty brutal. But if you think about it, that, that, that's actually pretty accurate. Um, our lives are, are, um, are like that. Sometimes you're walking along and, and it's all flowers and green grass and everything's cool. And, and then a scorching wind comes in. And that scorching wind brings with it pain. I mean, it may kill us. Uh, eventually, all of us will be, will be hit by that same scorching wind, right? I mean, the human story has a pretty predictable ending. We've seen it lots and lots of times. Um, we live a very short life full of a lot of passion and meaning and purpose, and then we die, right? And, and hopefully, our kids remember us, but, you know, that's about it, right? Your place doesn't even remember you anymore. Maybe your grandkids will remember your wrinkly old faces. Um, but beyond that, you just become a name on a tombstone. Your place doesn't even remember you anymore. That's the reality of the human condition. I know, it's, I'm sorry, pretty brutal. But sometimes the scorching wind comes in and we feel it too soon. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't kill us, it just hurts. A lot of times it comes in and, and that's when suffering comes in. And those are going to be things that are, that, are, that are just painful in life. They're going to be an unexpected twist to our story. We're not going toward the desired end anymore. We, we had this vision of what our life was supposed to be, and suddenly that isn't where it's going anymore. We had an idea of who we wanted to spend our life with, and, and something happened, and that, that's just not where it's going to go anymore. We had an idea of what we were going to do for a living or what we were going to do with our money, and suddenly there's a, an expense that comes in. 
AC goes out or a car fails and, and, or, or we lose our job. It's just not the way it was anymore. Or we're trusting somebody and looking to them to meet very specific needs in our lives and they let us down. They betray us. They abandon us. They leave us. And it's just not the way it was anymore. Or we're looking to somebody and walking with them and we love them and the scorching winds come in and suddenly there's illness or other struggles. This is reality. This is reality, right? I mean, I'm not describing something here that's like a horror story, right? I mean, this is life. We all know people that are struggling with cancer. We know people that have been abandoned. We know people that are hurting. We ourselves are struggling and hurting because real life hurts, right? This is just brutal honesty. If we just take a real look at life, it's difficult. But there's hope. I'm not going to leave you there for too long. There's hope. And that's kind of where the psalm goes, you guys, is is there's a way to deal with this um, that that is going to give us hope. We live in a world where the second law of thermodynamics is at work. Everything's moving toward a state of disorder. Things fall apart. People fall apart. Uh, Plans fall apart. That's the reality of the world in which we live. And and because of that, here's the deal. We need to have a real faith. Sentimental platitudes are not going to do us any good in the day when the scorching wind comes in. Idealistic religious aspirations are not going to do us any good the day that the scorching winds come in. Going to church and being a good person and just doing the religious things are not going to do you any good You need to have a real, vibrant faith if it's going to carry you through. And that means that your faith needs to have a theology that encompasses suffering. Your faith needs to have an understanding of God and this world that has a framework that understands the place of suffering because few things will test our faith like suffering. When suffering comes in, it'll do one of two things to us. It'll destroy our faith or it'll strengthen it. Those are the only two results. I mean, we've all had friends, and I definitely have friends, very specific people that I know that, that went to church, they were into the community, they were serving, they were excited, they loved to sing the songs, they might have even been on certain teams. And then the fire came in, the scorching wind came in, and, and, and man, it tested them in ways, and, and they just weren't prepared, they didn't have a foundation, and they ended up, instead of turning to God, questioning God. Instead of finding strength in their faith, they started to question their faith. And they walked away and became bitter and angry and distant. For others, the suffering comes in and it it almost seems to set them free. I don't know any other way to describe it. For some people, the suffering comes into their life and they are more beautiful. They are stronger. Their lives are actually transformed in incredibly wonderful ways from having gone through the fire. They're they're like um, what Dan described last week when he went through Psalm 1. Psalm 1 describes the blessed man, how he's like a tree firmly planted by streams of water who who bears his fruit in his season and his leaf doesn't wither and everything he does, he prospers. The streams of water there, it's talking about these seasonal streams. So even during the period of drought, that tree is strong, right? Some people are like that. We go through the suffering and we actually get stronger. We want to be like that. Um, there's a person that, that many of you have probably heard of, some of you probably haven't. Her name is, uh, is Johnny Erickson Tata. 
Um, and she has a pretty incredible story. When she was young, um, she was athletic and artistic and, and um, a wonderful family and, and just had everything going for her. She was 17 years old and she was going swimming in the Chesapeake Bay and she misjudged the depth of the water. She dove into the water, broke her back and became a paraplegic. 17 years old. She said in those early days of dealing with her paraplegia, dealing with the struggle, she had, she had despair, anger at God, desire to, to commit suicide, to just exit life, because everything she knew about life had changed. Now, if you know her story, you know that, that the struggle actually deepened her faith. Um, and she became a, a, a pretty incredible woman of faith who helped many other people who were also struggling with tragedy. She learned how to sing even though she couldn't control the, the muscles in her chest. She learned how to do incredible art simply using her mouth and paintbrushes. She, she became a testimony of, of, I am going to celebrate the grace of God in spite of my struggles. Um, well, I was reading and I was researching this recently in the last two years, she's been diagnosed with, with breast cancer. Um, the scorching winds don't stop. <laughs> the scorching winds are consistent and they return. And what I loved, and I'm going to read you this quote, because someone was interviewing her and asking her about the, the introduction of breast cancer into her life now that she's after, you know, a life as a, as a paraplegic and, 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 or quadriplegic and, and, and all these struggles. And this is what she said. She said, I want to assure you that I am genuinely content to receive from God whatever he deems fit for me, even if it's from his left hand. Because better something from his left hand than no hand at all, right? That's crazy talk. You know what I'm saying? I mean, she's just been diagnosed with breast cancer. You know what I'm saying? She spent her life as a quadriplegic. And yet when the scorching wind comes in, when the fire comes in, it's actually more sweetness that comes out, more strength that comes out, more beauty that comes out. What's the difference between someone like her and somebody who gets bitter and walks away? bottom line is faith. The bottom line is faith. I want that kind of faith. I want that kind of faith. Now, here's the deal, and we're going to talk about this as we go through this morning. You can't give yourself that kind of faith. You can't just decide to have it. You can't will yourself into it. You can't force yourself. You can't just say, I choose that faith, and now I magically have it. You can't do that. You know why? Because, because faith isn't something you create. Faith isn't something you generate or choose to have. Faith is a response to truth. In other words, the only way to have faith is to be confronted with truth. And when you're confronted with truth, you can either believe it or reject it. When we believe the truth, when we are fully persuaded that it is true, that's the seed of genuine faith. In other words, when we look at God and we say to him, you are who you say you are, and you have done what you've said you've done, and you will do what you've said you will do, that's faith. It's a response to a revelation of truth. So we're going to confront our souls a little bit this morning with some truths, with the purpose of, of producing some faith, or at least looking at what kind of faith should be produced that will allow us to suffer in a way that produces beauty and not bitterness. So we're going to take a look. Where does suffering come from, and how can we suffer in a way that, that, that makes our, 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 go through the hard stuff in a way that makes our faith more real, more authentic, um, huh, setting loose greater beauty and power and joy in our lives, as opposed to simply gritting our teeth, white-knuckling it, pretending, and becoming more and more religious and more and more bitter. All right, 
So where do we need to start? If we're going to understand how things are today, why do the scorching winds exist? We have to understand where we came from. Now, in the psalm, David doesn't actually take us back to the creation account, but it underlies everything he talks about. He's writing to an audience that that creation story would have been um, present in their mind and they would have understood the principles. So I'm just going to unpack a few principles from the beginning of our story that help us understand why we are where we are. When you go back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and we're not going to go back and read it, but let me unpack a little bit, you're going to see the creation account. In Genesis chapter 1, in fact, you see the six days of creation. And on each day of creation, God creates everything. And then he sits back at the end of the day and he looks at it and he says, hmm, I like it. It's good. Day two, he creates cool stuff. He sits back, looks at it and says, I like that too. It's good. Day three, creates, you know what I'm saying? All the way through through day six, creates uh, man and women in, in his own image and, and, and all that. And then he sits back at the end of day six and he says, it's good. It is very good. Now, what does that mean? Is that like an artist after they've created a painting sitting back and going, huh, I think I did a pretty good job. <laughs> Look at that. That's the most realistic thing I've ever painted. You know what I'm saying? Is that like him sitting back going, man, I really did a good job with this, right? Now, what he's saying when he, when he creates and he says it's good, what he's saying is what he's created actually reflects his goodness. It's actually in harmony with who he is. At the end of each day, And at the end of the sixth day, he looked at the entire created order and he said, this is at harmony with me. So every day he was like creating a different instrument in the orchestra and on their own, they were tweeting and whatever. But at the end of the six days, each day, it created this glorious harmony, a glorious hum in the universe in which everything had its own unique place and purpose. Everything had its own thing, but they all worked together together in a glorious way that reflected the wholeness, the goodness, the health of God. Theologians call that the shalom of God. Shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace. It meant that peace defined the created order. There was a sense of wholeness and peace and goodness about the created order because everything was centered around God. God was the glorious center of all things. And as the glorious center, his glory defined all things because they were all good. They were all in tune with it. The problem was Genesis 3 happened. And in Genesis 3, man and women looked at God and basically said, we don't want you to be the center anymore. We want to be the center. We want to be like God. We want to be the center. We want everything to revolve around us. We want to, to have all the benefits of God without having to operate in submission to God. We want the blessing of the Father without the relationship of the Father. They wanted all the good without the thing that made it good. And in that rebellion, they broke the shalom of God. They broke the shalom of God. They rejected the peace of God. And as the stewards of the entire created order, because God gave humanity an incredibly exalted position over what he created, basically the stewards of all things, they plunged not just themselves but the entire created order into the disorder of their rebellion. And so what that means, I'm going to throw this up here. It's a slide that just shows you the extent to which when you look at Genesis 3 carefully, you can see every relationship a man has, every relationship a human has, has been affected by the loss of shalom. Right there at the beginning, after Adam and Eve's sin, um, the first thing they notice is that they're naked, 
right? When they were created, they were walking around uh, in the buff, glorious in their nakedness, right? Just uh, exalting in one another's um, beauty and, and had nothing to, to fear. Now, Genesis 3 isn't telling us the human body is evil. What it's telling us is that suddenly there was an introduction of something new called shame. For the first time in human experience, humans understood what it meant to need to hide. They understood there was something wrong in themselves, and they needed to put a barrier between them and God, them and each other, them and the world. They set loose the inner critic's voice. They lost shalom with themselves. They, they lost shalom with each other. When God was explaining what happened, it's often called the curse when you read through, through Genesis 3. And I, I don't like that. I don't think curse is the best word. I think it's consequence. God isn't cursing Adam and Eve. He's just explaining to them the consequences of the choice they've made. And he looks at Eve and he basically says to her, as a consequence of breaking shalom with me, you will have great pain in childbirth and you will desire your husband and he will rule over you, which is really loaded language. But here's what I think it's really getting at. Basically, what he's saying to her is that the family used to be the center of your most intimate, protected human relationships, and it's now going to be defined by pain. The children that you give birth to, the ones that that you're going to love and lay down your life for, are at times going to hate you and rebel against you and fight against your authority, and they're going to want to be the center, And, and, and it's going to be defined by pain, and she experienced that. First two kids that were born in the world, one murdered the other. And, and not only that, the most intimate human relationship given to us, a man and a woman, where, where two become one. He basically says, even that's touched. You're going to desire him and he's going to want to rule over you. In other words, now, no longer are you going to have perfectly complementary roles in which you love and respect one another. This most intimate relationship is going to be defined by conflict and power struggle and a lack of respect and insecurity a loss of shalom in human relationships, a loss of shalom in a relationship between man and God. Man used to walk with God in the cool of the evening and enjoy his, his, his company. And we see now that, that, that man, because of his cosmic treason, can no longer freely enter into the presence of the holy judge of the universe. There's a loss of shalom between man and God because their sin has made them repulsive and, in fact, an offense to the righteous and holy God of the universe. And so now man lives in fear of God, doubting God, angry at God, separated from God. He's put out of the garden, Adam and Eve, and there's a flaming sword put at the entrance. What does that show us? It shows us that that we are powerless to bridge that gap. We've lost shalom with God and we have no power to go back to the garden. We have no power to go back to the place of shalom. We're separated. And and then we see in the end that, that man has lost shalom with creation. He looks at Adam and he says, one of the consequences of your, of your rebellion is now the land itself is going to rise up against you. The very created order that you were given to be a steward over is going to rise up against you with thistles and thorns. And so as a result, even creation groans under the brokenness of shalom. Why is there suffering in the world? It's because there are two wills in the world fighting to be center. There's suffering in the world because of the loss of shalom. And I think this gives us a framework to understand the suffering in the world. Not, not a simple answer for it, but a framework. Think about it like this. I had a van that um, uh, we'd get close to highway speed, and all of a sudden you just start hearing this bump, 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 bump.
bump. And if you kept going, pretty soon the whole thing is like rocking, you know? And, and if you get actual highway speed, I mean, the whole thing's shaking and shimmying to the point that you feel like it's just going to come apart on the road. I don't know if you've ever had a car like that. Um, they're fun. And, and, you know, it was a lot of adrenaline for the kids. And, and, and Lauren told me I eventually had to fix it. And so, um, you know, I, I took it in. I couldn't figure it out because I couldn't find out what was wrong. Uh, we figured out that, that um, somewhere along the line, somebody uh, um, rammed the, one of the wheels into a curb and bent the rim. So it knocked the center off the rim. And so as that thing was spinning, it created a vibration. And at first it was real small, but, it, but as that thing continued spinning, that vibration would spread through the entire car. And if left unchecked, it would tear the entire vehicle apart. That's what's happened with the rebellion of Genesis 3. It has set loose a vibration in the entire created order that will tear the entire thing apart. We are on a car that is in the process of self-destructing. And if the grace of God doesn't intervene, we have no hope. We have no hope. So when you look about it, I mean, how do you explain tornadoes and earthquakes? Is that, a, is that an angry, capricious God simply looking at a world and saying, you know, I'm done with you. I'm tired of you. I'm, I'm a little annoyed with you, so I'm just going to send a tornado. No. No, that's not, that's not God getting peeved. That's the world breaking under the vibration of our rebellion. Why does the world rise up against us? Because there's a loss of shalom. Why, why are there angry, abusive, mean people in the world? Is it because God doesn't care? No, it's because God gives us the freedom. And in our freedom, we have chosen to rebel against Him. And as a result, we've lost shalom with God. Let me ask you something. Why do you do what you do? Whatever you do, why do you put on the clothes you put on? Uh, why, why, do you, why do you enjoy the hobbies you enjoy? Why do you pursue the career you pursue? Why did you marry the person you married or date the person you date or dream about the person? Why do you do these things? I'm going to propose to you that there is, at the root of it, a simple, fundamental desire in every person to once again experience the shalom of God. We've all lost it, and we all want it. And so we turn to our hobbies. Why? Because we think we're going to find that peace, that harmony, that inner sense of wholeness in it. That's why we turn to relationships. That's why, we, that's why some people honestly turn to alcohol or pornography or to um, abusive relationships. That's why some people become intolerably evil. I would say it's the same exact desire. They are seeking through those evil means the same exact thing we all want, which is a sense of wholeness and peace and some people are so, so angry that they have lost shalom and they can't seem to ever get it back that they would burn down the world. This gives us a framework to understand suffering. You know, this, this explains why you have that inner critic's voice. You know the one I'm talking about? The one that tells you you're not pretty enough? The one that tells you you're not smart enough, you're not good enough? The one that tells you that, that, that you're not going to measure up? The one that even tells you in the midst of following God, you're a loser, huh? You don't have the faith to follow God. See, it's all the loss of shalom. It's this vibration set loose in the universe. And that helps us explain and understand why they're suffering. But here's the deal, you guys. When we hurt, when the scorching winds come in, we need a lot more than just that information, don't we? It's not good enough to know why they're suffering in the world. We need to know how to deal with it. Um, we need faith. We need real, living, life-giving faith. 
And you can't give yourself that kind of faith. You can't just choose to have it in the moment when the crisis comes. You can't just say, I am now a man or a woman of faith because faith is only a response to a revelation of truth. Your soul has to be confronted with truth. And in that confrontation, you have an invitation to grow in faith. Faith ultimately believes God's trustworthy. Which is, by the way, our greatest struggle. We just don't believe it. Ah, oh, Steve, I believe it. Yeah, you do. <laughs> but not enough. <laughs> That's what life is. It's growing in faith. It's becoming more and more persuaded that God is who He said He is, and that He'll do what He said He would do. So here's the deal. We need truths. If we can't give ourselves that faith, we need the truths that will produce that kind of faith. We need to confront our soul with the truths that actually provoke that kind of faith so that we will be able to stay strong in the face of suffering. So David shows us three things in this psalm that helped him process suffering because he understood suffering. If you look at the life of David, he understood what it meant to, to suffer. I mean, he was, he was uh, um, declared king by God and then had to run and hide in caves while Saul, the one who was actually leading his king, pursued him. He understood what it meant to be betrayed by friends and, and alienated. He understood even when he became king what it was to suffer as his own son rebelled against him and, 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 and to the point of wanting to kill him. He understood suffering. So how did David feed his faith in a way that allowed him to suffer in a way that he could write Psalm 103. Bless the, the Lord, O oh my soul. All right, I'm going to unpack three things. The first thing is that while our lives are very, very small, while our lives, you look at the timeline of the universe, our lives are a tiny little speck. God is huge. <laughs> God's dot is bigger than the line, okay? Uh, take a look at verses 15 through 18. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His commandments. Here's the deal. God's story is bigger than our story because God's timeline is bigger than our timeline. If you were to extend the timeline to creation and then keep going, don't turn right, just keep on going, you'll never find the end of God. Extend the timeline to the end of creation and keep on going, you'll never find the end of God. And that's not just because God's like really, really old. You know, I mean, some people think about God, he's got this really big white beard, he's like the grandpa in the sky kind of a deal because he's just been around so long. God's not old. Um, God is in fact... Um, ageless. Why? Because he's timeless. He's timeless. The name that he gave himself was Yahweh. When he revealed himself to Moses, he said to Moses, my name is Yahweh, a word that the Hebrew word that means I am what I am or, or I am the ever present one. I am. So we don't know what the present is because we simply live in this tension between the past and the future and it's always flowing by us. We can't stop it. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's a there it goes. I mean, it's gone. You can't get it back. The, the stream is flowing and we're on this float trip and we can't turn around. You know, we're all floating. God's outside the stream. The stream was created for us. He's on the, he's not even on the bank. He made the bank. He's, he's like over the whole thing. He's present at all points in time. Think about that. The creation of the world is I am to God. He's there right now. 
The end of the world is I am to God. He, he's there right now. Eternity passed before he created any of the material universe is I am to God. Eternity future is I am. He is present in all places at all times. To the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That's what Peter tells us. What does that even mean? <laughs> it means that a long period of time is not a long period of time to God because he's already there. Not only that, he's more involved in the present moment than we are. He experiences this present period of time in greater clarity, in greater color, and in deeper experience than we do. A day is like a thousand years to God. He has this weird relationship with time where he stands outside of it because he's always in the present. Hmm. His story is bigger than our story. And if he can see the beginning from the end, if he stands at the beginning of our story and at the end of our story, at the beginning of creation and at the end, that gives me hope because I can anchor my story in his. And I can trust that there's a greater storyteller than me. And that there's somebody who understands where all of this stuff is going and also understands where it all came from. And this is incredibly great news. If... Uh, He's strong enough to direct it. It's one thing to know it all, but if he's helpless, if he's just a, a bystander waiting to find out how things turn out, that's, that's not a lot of comfort. But God reveals himself as not only um, omnipresent and, and um, eternal, but he also reveals his power. Take a look at verse 19. In verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God not only is outside of time, and in all places at once. But while he's there, he's king. He's king. His throne um, was established in the heavens. Now, if you think about that, kind of like Zeus sitting up in a cloud, you're missing the point, right? Some of you watched Immortals or, or whatever the movies were, and, and, and you saw Zeus sitting up, in, you know, and every once in a while he would just swan dive down to earth to try and intervene or whatever. You're missing the point. The point of this is that his throne is not geographically anchored. His throne is not geographically anchored. It's not anchored in a point in time, nor is it anchored in a point in place. If Jesus were sitting on a throne in Jerusalem right now, that might be great news, but what good is that to me in Edwardsville? I can't walk over there and express my complaint, nor can he see me. His throne, though, is not anchored on the earth in any point in time. It is in the heavens, which means it's everywhere at all times. In fact, the verse tells us, that his kingdom rules over all. Now, how encompassing is all? What's left out of all? Anything? His kingdom rules over all. There's no place, no person, no nation, no election, no dark alley, no intention for good or evil in any human heart over which God is not sovereign. God rules over it all. He knows it all, and he rules over it as all. His power is absolute. His dominion is without limits, even in our suffering. He's absolutely powerful, absolutely in control. Now, some people go this far and they stop, and that's really bad. Because <laughs> if that's all you know, you're not going to suffer well. <laughs> Because this is really good stuff to know, but it's not enough to sustain you. Because what will end up happening is you'll start suffering and you'll get ticked at God. 
I'm in pain and you could have stopped it. Why didn't you? I'm suffering and you have not intervened. What's your problem, God? I suffered this horrendous injustice and you were there and you had the power to intervene and you didn't. It's not enough to just know that God is there and that He has power. That is not enough to give you faith. See, you need to know not just that God is big and strong. You need to know that God is for you. That God loves you. In that moment of crisis, we need to be convinced that this big and powerful God is not just big and powerful, but is personal and loving. And that God has the ability and the desire in love to take even the hard stuff in my life and turn it into something good. We need to be convinced that God is for us. And let's be honest. We're not real good at that. We do not naturally believe God loves us. We do not by nature believe God is for us. We doubt God. We stick on Him all the evil motivations we see in our own hearts. So how do we, how do we know that He loves us? How do we have the kind of faith that is so persuaded that God loves us that even if we're diagnosed with breast cancer like, like Johnny Erickson Tata, we can say, blessed be God who gives out of His left hand because I'd rather take it out of His left than His right. Because God in the end is going to do something good even with this. How do we get there? We need to have faith. And the only way we're going to have faith is to be confronted with truth. Here's the deal, you guys. God tells us that that, that His love is the measure of all love. That He is, in His very essence, love. And that anything we know of love is, in fact, simply a shadow of Him, a reflection of Him, an outgrowth of Him. Because the only reason we even know what love is is because He's love. He wired the universe for love. Why? Because He is love. Take a look at verses 7 through 10. He made his ways known to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Listen listen to what God says about himself. By the way, David here is actually quoting Um, Exodus 34, where God is actually saying, he looked at Moses and he said to Moses, my name is Yahweh, my name is the Lord, and I am, uh, and then he basically said this, I am a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. These are God's own words out of his own mouth, describing himself. He says that he is merciful and gracious. What does that mean? Merciful means that he, he doesn't give what we deserve. Gracious means he does give what we don't deserve. So, so he doesn't give us the penalty we deserve. But he does give us lots of good things that that we don't deserve. That's his nature. He he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. The Hebrew phrase here, literally, long of nose. Because in their ideas, when you got angry, man, you just kind of turned red. And that red would just rise, you know, and the last point to turn red would be the tip of your nose, right? God's nose is really long, right? 
He, he doesn't just fly off the handle and write people off. He doesn't just like, bam, he's in wrath mode, right? God takes a long time to get mad. He does. He does. He gets angry at sin. He gets angry at unrighteousness. He gets angry at rebellion because he's a righteous God. But he doesn't just switch into anger mode. He's incredibly patient. And then he says this, and I love this. He says that he is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. The word for love here is the Hebrew word hased. It's a word that talks about a love that, that a superior would have for an inferior. In other words, somebody would have said love for somebody that doesn't deserve it. Like, like there's nothing in that person that actually provokes it. There's nothing in that person that actually deserves it. The superior simply chooses to love the inferior. They make the choice that I will work for their best interest. I will set my affection on them. I will have said love for them. There's a work of profound spiritual and theological significance called the Children's Storybook Bible. And, and that was funny. In that, you can laugh, um, in that book, it is a great book, by the way. We have it at a resource center. We, we, we give it to parents to read with their kids. And I love it because it tells the Bible story in such a simple, profound way where it shows Christ as the center of all things. And she says this. She basically, when she, when she translates the word has said, she says it's a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. That's Hesed. Listen to that. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Who doesn't want that kind of love? Who doesn't want that kind of unconditional, absolutely committed love that is not dependent on whether or not I deserve it or earn it or maintain it? It's completely based on the choice of the giver. God says, I am a God of Hesed. Now, what I love about this is that he says this in Exodus 34. Now, some of you know the story, and you kind of know where this is going. Some of you don't. Let me unpack it a little bit. What's going on in Exodus 34? Well, God has just delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt, right? They were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. God delivered them miraculously from Egypt, brought them across the desert, provided for them, led them as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke, and brought them to Mount Sinai and basically said to them, hey, you guys, how would you like to be my wife? How would you like to enter into covenant with me? How would you like to, and I love this, the, the King James says, peculiar people. How would you like to be my peculiar people, my unique people, my covenant people, the people on whom I have has said love? And the Israelites were like, yeah, we're in. Let's do it. Marriage, woo. All right, so they send Moses up the mountain to basically go ratify the covenant, right? He's going up there and he meets with God and God gives them the Ten Commandments and this incredible thing. Like there's fire and smoke, literally. They're at the base of the mountain. There's like earthquakes. You look up, there's like fire and smoke on top of the mountain, right? It's not like God just disappeared. He's right there. What do the Israelites do? They get bored. <laughs> and they grab Aaron, the priest, and they're like, hey, dude, why don't you like melt down all of our gold and make us an idol? We're getting kind of bored. So they did. They gathered all the gold of the Israelites that they had just taken as a, they had gotten it as a gift. God had, had blessed them as they left Egypt and, and the Egyptians basically gave them spoils. They melted it all down and they formed a calf. Moses comes down from the mountain and sees what they've done and he's so distraught. He smashes the Ten Commandments. 
And he goes back up on the mountain and he's like, God, what do we do with this? Don't destroy him, please. And that's when God said this, I am Yahweh. I am, I am, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You guys, this would be like you getting married and on your wedding night, your spouse, in order to celebrate your marriage, goes and gets a hooker. That's betrayal. That is treason. The Israelites were in that moment standing in their shame before God, exposed. <laughs> in their sin. And God looked at them and said, I'm the kind of God that loves you anyway. I'm the kind of God that will love you even though you don't deserve it. That will choose to love you even though you betray me. I am the kind of God who will continue to love you even though you have a betrayer's heart. And who of us can't identify with the Israelites? Who of us has not, in the winking of an eye, walked away from the love of God and turned to idols instead? Who of us has not looked to things or to people to do for us what only God could do, to be for us what only God could be? But God's a God of has said. He loves us in spite of it. That's Love. See, see, what I want you to catch here is God demonstrated to Moses, I'm going to tell you who I am, but I'm also going to show you. I'm going to proclaim it, and then I'm going to demonstrate it, because what I'm telling you is true of my character, and when my character is tested, it comes out as true. So David is looking back to Moses, and he's saying, look at what God did in Exodus 34. Look at what God did with the nation of Israel. He said that's who he was, and he demonstrated that's who he is. And as a result, David's heart actually believed. David had faith that God, in fact, loved him in spite of his faults, in spite of his suffering, in the midst of his pain, because he knew God was a God of his said. Now, David was looking back to Moses. We look back to Jesus. Jesus came 3,000 years after this poem was written. And what greater demonstration of has said love could we ever have than Jesus? God demonstrating that he loves us, not because we deserve it, because he chooses to, and he loves us to the point of absolute self-destruction. He loves us to the point where the God of the universe sets aside his glory and becomes one of his created. The infinite, eternal, a powerful God becomes a man of dust so he can so fully identify with us He can experience everything we've experienced, the loneliness, the betrayal, the physical sufferings, the accidents, all of it. He lived in this broken world and understood it all to the point of actually identifying with it fully. You want to see the Hesed love of God? It's the husband so fully identifying with the crime of his wife that he died for her. 
the faithful one took the place of the traitor and bore the full consequence of the sin and the rebellion and the brokenness so that he could redeem for himself the people that he loves. Take a look again at verses 10 through 13 and listen to it. Listen to it through the lens of this God. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. I don't think there's any more tangible expression of love. In very human terms, is there any greater form of love than a man lay down his life for his friend? If someone were to take your place in death, man, you'd know that person loved you. But here we're talking about God, the holy, righteous God of the universe laying down his life for an entire race of rebels and suffering in their place the eternal weight of their cosmic guilt. You guys, listen to me. If you want faith, fill your vision with this God. If you want the kind of faith that will give you strength to endure in suffering, you need to fill your vision with the God of Hesed love. A Jesus who loves us enough to fight for us to go into battle for us, to die for us. And even when he rises again, he doesn't rise in his own victory. He rises in ours. Fill your vision with that guy, with that God. And your heart will actually come to trust him. Your heart will actually come to trust him. You need to see a God willing to allow what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. A God who loves us enough to allow us to suffer when we need to suffer in order to become the people he's created us to be. A God who ultimately will ultimately answer all the questions why, even though he won't do it now, because he's turning everything according to the course of his will. And things may make no sense in the present, but we can trust that in His hands, the God who's big enough and powerful enough and loving enough, that we can trust that even in the middle of the pain right now, the suffering right now, He is strong enough and loving enough to be trusted. Johnny Erickson Tata, I'm going to give you one more quote. She actually started a ministry um, in her lifetime where she basically taught people how to suffer. Pretty incredible. Um, she basically took people who were in deep suffering and modeled for them and taught them uh, a theology of suffering. How, how can you actually suffer in a way that, that sets you free in faith, that actually produces something beautiful and strong and incredible in you instead of something bitter and shriveled and angry? And, and this is what she said. I loved this. She said, here at our ministry, we refuse to present a picture of a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a portrait that tugs at your sentiments 
or pulls at your heartstrings. That's because we deal with so many people who suffer. And when you're hurting hard, you're neither helped nor inspired by a syrupy picture of the Lord, like those sugary, sentimental images many of us grew up with. You know what I mean? Jesus with his hair parted down the middle, surrounded by cherubic children and bluebirds. Come on, admit it. When your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, when you feel like Morton salt is being poured on your wounded soul, you don't want a thin, pale, emotional Jesus who relates only to lambs and birds and babies. You want a warrior Jesus. You want a battlefield Jesus. You want his rigorous and robust gospel to command your sensibilities to stand at attention. To be honest, many of the sentimental hymns and gospel songs of our heritage don't do much to hone that image. One of the favorite words of hymn writers in days gone by was sweet. It's a term that doesn't have the edge on it that it once did. When you're in a dark place, when lions surround you, when you need strong help to rescue you from impossibility, you don't want sweet. You don't want faded pastels and honeyed softness. You want mighty. You want the strong arm of an unshakable grip of God who will not let you go no matter what. I don't know if you picked up on that, but you have all of the themes right there. A God whose story is bigger than ours, a God whose strength is greater than ours, a God who loves us and will never let us go, who will hold us tight, who is faithful even when we're faithless, who can see where we're going even when we're blind, a God who will drag us when we will not walk because he loves us so much. He won't let us go. Guys, here's the deal. If we want this kind of faith, it just doesn't... It's not like you get to suffering and they say, oh, yeah, I better get serious about this. Or, oh, hey, I better start thinking. We need to be developing this kind of faith. Because the reality is, if we're not developing this kind of faith, we're probably not in the faith. I mean, it's honest. We need to look at Jesus. And we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to preach the truth to ourselves. What does that mean? You ever notice that the psalmists do really weird things? Like, like at the beginning where he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. These guys talk to themselves a lot. You notice that? They talk to their souls. Hey, soul. <laughs> Bless God. <laughs> Why are they talking to themselves? Because they're giving us a glimpse of their regular habit. They do talk to themselves internally. They preach the truth to themselves. They confront themselves with truth on a regular basis to provoke faith. They remind themselves continually of who God is and what God has done so that their faith is alive and vibrant and filled with joy and not simply an empty religious duty that you're putting in because you're on autopilot. Autopilot never helped anybody who was suffering. Faith does. So what does that mean? What do we need to do? We need to stop rehearsing our hurts and start refreshing our faith. We need to stop wallowing in the suffering and start filling our vision with Christ. Now let's admit it, there is a sick pleasure in filling our vision with our own suffering. There are times we love to have that image of ourselves righteously suffering and holding out a grudge against people that have done us wrong, feeling so righteous in our vindication against them. Why? because it makes us feel justified sitting at the center. 
It makes us feel justified pretending we're God. We feel so, so self-satisfied, so comfortable in that position, we even judge God. Who are you, God? I reject you, God. You're not my father. Man, we're in that position, man. We think we're so high, we're above God himself. We're rehearsing our injuries and reinforcing the lies. Do you get that? We are self-deceived and loving the deception and preaching it to our own souls, to our own destruction. We need to confront our souls with the truth that while we're broken, we're loved. While we're sinners, we are cherished. And while this world is rattling and shaking and falling apart around us, there is a God who is greater than this world who will redeem it and restore it because he is a God of said love. And he has not only said it, he has demonstrated it. We need to preach the truth to our own soul. Like David at the beginning, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. He's calling himself to truth. So it will awaken in him faith. And in that faith, he can stand in strength and in freedom. You guys, that's what we want. That's the kind of faith we want. And if we want that kind of faith, man, we better get serious about the truth. We better develop habits of preaching the truth to our own souls instead of reinforcing the lies that are so easy.